Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. One of the required courses in Bible schools and seminaries is a course called homiletics. It's designed to teach you the art of preaching. I have to be honest with you this morning, I didn't do real well in homiletics. Partly because I had a bad attitude. Because I was convinced that you couldn't teach somebody how to preach. Because preaching is not an art, it's a gift. And I think in looking back, I also was very committed to the fact that the last thing I wanted to be was a preacher. So I didn't want anybody to squeeze me into some mold that God had not called me to be in. But in looking back, I realized that even if, if a person, or if a person does have the gift, there are some things you can learn in developing that gift. And really two of the things that are emphasized in homiletics by means of teaching is number one, example. They would uh, show us the sermons of effective preachers in the past and you would look at those and learn from those and learn from their styles and so forth. And so one way of teaching was example. The other was experience. You got to come up in front of the class and preach while all your classmates were critiquing you. And I don't know if you understand how intimidating that is to, to, to stand up and preach while everybody is filling out an evaluation form. And I'm reminded of that this morning as we come to Acts chapter 2 because here we have the first sermon ever preached in the Christian church. And it's preached by Peter. He's an unlikely preacher. He never took a course in homiletics. In fact, he didn't take a course in much of anything. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 says he was uneducated. The thing he knew most about was fishing. He had been trained three and a half years by the Lord Jesus, but he flunked his finals. Fifty days earlier, he had denied he knew Jesus three times. And yet, if we were to set about to critique Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he gets high marks. Now, the kind of questions you would have on your evaluation form would be questions like this. Does he have good posture? Do I? <laughs> Peter would get high marks in that because verse 14 says he took his stand. Now, in the synagogue, typically the teacher sat while he taught. Peter's out in the streets of Jerusalem. He takes his stand before the people. Another question would be, does he have adequate volume? Peter gets high marks here too. Because verse 14 says he raised his voice. Another question is, does he make eye contact? And I love the phrase in verse 14 where it says of Peter, he declared to them. Some preachers preach in front of people. Peter preached to people. And there's a world of difference. Another question would be, is he relevant? And in Peter, Peter's case, absolutely. Because he is answering the very questions that the people are asking. Verse 12 says they were asking, what does this mean? 
Verse 37, they're asking, what shall, I, shall we do? Peter is answering those very questions. He's relevant. Another question is, does he have your attention? They say that if in the first 45 seconds you don't get people's attention, they go into the snooze mode. And so, it's recommended that you tell an illustration or a, or a story to catch people's attention from the outset. Peter didn't have to do that because God got their attention. There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and there were the, the, the tongues of fire resting over their heads and they were speaking in other languages and the people were gathering around to see what had happened. And so, God had already given Peter the illustration. He had their attention. Another question would be, is there a clear theme? And this is where Peter really shines because the point of his message is crystal clear. He quotes from Joel chapter 2 beginning in verse 17 to let them know that they were witnessing the pouring forth of the Spirit of God. And the age of the Spirit would begin with proclamation and it would end with tribulation. It would begin with sons, daughters, young, old, bond slaves prophesying. It would end with blood, fire, smoke, the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood. But throughout this age, the invitation is the same. And Peter gives it to us in verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And having quoted that verse... Peter then drops a bomb on them. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter says, The Lord upon whom you must call is the man that you crucified 50 days ago in the city of Jerusalem. And that's really the conclusion of his message. If you slide down to verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified Him. God made Him Lord. He's the one you have to call upon to be saved. And throughout Peter's message, he, comes, he, he works toward that conclusion. And what I want to see this morning is how beautifully he arrives there. And he really gets there by laying out four points, which are the four great events of history upon which our faith rests. Those points are Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' exaltation. First of all, Jesus' life, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Now Peter is going to end his sermon by telling us that Jesus is Lord. But he begins his sermon by using Jesus' earthly name. He is Jesus the Nazarene. Now, in that day, Jesus was a common name. A lot of people had that name. And so to, to de designate and clarify exactly who he's talking about, he says, I'm talking about Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus 
from the city of Nazareth. And that was the most common designation that the Lord Jesus had. You remember in the garden when the soldiers came in to arrest Him? Jesus said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And He said, I am. When Peter was out warming himself at the fire in the courtyard of the high priest, the servant girl came up to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Nazarene. Remember what the sign said over his cross? Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And so Peter starts out by giving this most common name whereby everyone would know who he was talking about, Jesus the Nazarene. But he's not only calling him that to designate exactly who he's talking about, he's designating him that way because he wants to point out also his humanity. And that's why we read in verse 22 that he says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man. He's not a phantom, not a spirit being, he wasn't an angel that came down for a temporary visit. He was a man. Jesus, raised in the city of Nazareth. And so he points out his humanity to begin with. And then he goes beyond that. He says, He is a man, verse 22, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. God proved who He was through miracles, wonders, and signs. Now those are three words that mean almost the same thing. They just have a little different angle on them. Miracles emphasizes the power of God that produced them. Wonders emphasizes the reaction of people to those miracles. And signs indicates that they had a purpose. They were pointing toward something. Now Peter didn't have to elaborate on the miracles and wonders and signs because they were fresh in the people's minds. He simply points to what they were pointing to. You see, when Jesus turned the water into wine, and when Jesus calmed the storm and multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and when He healed people and when He raised the dead, God was confirming something. And what was that? That He is Messiah. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3? He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The miracles verified who he is. Several years ago, there was a conference of pastors and liberal scholars who got together and they called it in search of the historical Jesus. And they all got together and they went back to their Bibles to find the Jesus apart from the miracles, saying that that was the real historical Jesus. I could have saved them some time. Because this verse tells us you can go looking for a historical, non-miraculous Jesus and you'll never find Him. Because the historical Jesus is the miracle-working Jesus. And here we're told that God worked these miracles through Him. You say, well, does that mean that Jesus wasn't God? That He couldn't work the miracles out Himself? No. 
He was taking the role that God gave him. Remember what Jesus said in John 5, 19? He said, the Son can do nothing of Himself. In John 9, 4, He said, I must work the works of Him who sent me. God the Father worked the miracles through Him. In fact, in all these events that Peter talks about, we see God at work. In verse 22, we're told that God performed the miracles through Him. Verse 23, God delivered Him over to death. Verse 24, God raised Him up again. Verse 33, God exalted Him. And so Peter's conclusion is, verse 36, God made Him Lord and Christ. God proves something by the miracles. And when God wants to prove something, He makes it clear. And so He says at the end of verse 22, God performed the miracles through Him in your midst just as you yourselves know. These miracles weren't done in private. They weren't done in secret. They were done, Peter says, in your midst. And you all know about it. He eliminates the excuse of ignorance. They saw the miracles. They knew the miracles. They could attest to the miracles. You say, well, if they saw the miracles then how did they miss Him? I have people tell me all the time, you know, if God would just do a miracle in my midst, I'd believe. Or if I had been around when Jesus was doing the miracles, I'd believe. Guess what? These people saw the miracles, and they didn't believe. You see, genuine evidence doesn't necessarily lead to genuine commitment. And probably the classic example of that is in John chapter 11. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and it says many people believed, but it says others went and told the Pharisees. And John chapter 11 verse 47 says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, What are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs. They saw the signs, they knew about the signs, they confirmed the signs, they didn't even try to deny them. They said, he's doing the signs. What are we going to do? Now that seems logical. They should have gone and bowed down at his feet. But instead, if you read John chapter 11, they decided to put together a plan to kill him. They saw the signs... They knew about the signs. They were amazed by the signs. And yet they wouldn't bow the knee to Jesus. Why not? Well, because the problem with man is not intellectual. The problem with man is moral. And Jesus put His finger on it in John chapter 3 and verse 19 when He said, The light has come into the world... And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Why could they see the signs and still reject Jesus? Because they loved their sin and didn't want to let it go. And so even though through His life, God was saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Christ, they rejected Him. Which brings us to the second point, Jesus' death, verse 23. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God 
you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, Peter is pretty relentless. He is one of those in-your-face kind of preachers. Because he says here, this man that was accredited by God, you put to death. And it doesn't say this in the text, but I imagine that Peter initiated that often used pulpit gesture, the bony finger. He says, God accredited him, you put him to death. In fact, he gets even more graphic. He says, you nailed him to the cross. You say, well, the Jews didn't really nail him to the cross. Well, look what he says here. He says, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. That word godless means lawless. It's speaking about those outside the law, outside of Judaism. He's speaking about the Romans. He's saying, yeah, you didn't drive the nails, but you drove the Romans to drive the nails. You caused it to happen by the hands of the Romans. And Peter says to the Jews, you're responsible. And if you remember your Gospel accounts, you know that they wanted that responsibility anyway. Because they stood before Pilate in Matthew 27 and they said, let him be crucified. And Pilate took out the water and washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. Remember what the crowd said? They said, his blood be on us and on our children. And so now Peter says to them, you killed him. But that's not the whole story. Because Jesus didn't die simply because the Jews wanted to get rid of him. There's another angle in verse 23. It says, This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Men nailed him to the cross, but God delivered him up. See, Jesus wasn't a victim. We're not saved because of the murder of Jesus Christ, we're saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God delivered him over. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, I lay down my life. And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. When he stood before Pilate in John chapter 19, Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate was only doing what God allowed him to do. And this verse tells us that God had a plan. God didn't just decide on the spur of the moment to deliver up His Son. In fact, God has no spurs on His moments. In fact, God has no moments. Because God is eternal. He is outside of time. But when He chose to enter time in the person of His Son... We're told in this verse that He came with a plan. And when is it that He planned to deliver up His Son? Well, from our perspective, it was a long time ago. Because Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 in describing Jesus calls Him the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Because in God's mind, it was a done deal before He ever even started creating the world. His plan was in place that Jesus would die for you and for me.
And that's why if you look at verse 23, he uses the word foreknowledge. Some people try to make the word foreknowledge simply mean that God looked ahead and, and saw what was going to happen and knew it ahead of time. If, if we take that definition of the word, that means that, that God looked ahead and saw that, that they were going to crucify His Son and said, oh, oh my! See, God isn't surprised by anything. Foreknowledge means that God knew ahead of time what was going to happen, and He planned ahead of time. He determined ahead of time what would take place because He is the Sovereign Lord. And we see that plan being worked out throughout Scripture. When Jesus was being arrested in the garden in Matthew 26, you remember that Peter took out his sword and tried to defend the Lord. And the Lord told him to put up his sword. And then He said to Peter, He said, don't you know that I could appeal to my Father and He would send me twelve legions of angels? And then He makes this comment. He says, but how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled? If I called twelve legions of angels, the Scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled. And then He says this, it must happen this way. Why? Because God has planned. Let me show you a verse. Look at Acts 4. Just turn over two chapters to Acts chapter 4. Verse 27. This is good. The apostles are praying to the Lord, and notice what they say to Him. Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Thy holy servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They're praying to God and they say, Your, your servant Jesus was here, your anointed one, and He was surrounded by enemies. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. But then notice verse 28. To do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Don't you like that? Jesus was surrounded. Everything looked bleak. The apostles say to the Lord, those enemies did exactly what you predetermined that they would do because you're in charge. God had a plan. God predetermined that Jesus would be delivered up and put to death. But what I want you to notice also back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 is that God's plan doesn't eliminate the human responsibility. Peter looked at the crowd and he said, yeah, God had a plan. God delivered him up. You crucified him. The human responsibility is still there along with the divine sovereignty. Brings us to the third point, Jesus' resurrection, and that's in verses 24 to 32. This is really the climax of redemptive history. It's the central issue of apostolic preaching. In fact, it's interesting that Peter spends one verse on Jesus' life, one verse on His death. He spends nine verses on Jesus' resurrection. And he begins by simply stating it in verse 24, and God raised Him up again. You know what's remarkable to me? Nobody protested that statement. He's standing in the very city where a little over a month ago these events took place. And Peter says, God raised him from the dead. And nobody stepped forward to oppose that statement. Why? Because the tomb was empty. 
God raised him from the dead. Notice what he says in the rest of verse 24. Putting an end to the agony of death. That word agony is literally birth pangs. Putting an end to the birth pangs of death. When Jesus went into death, it was like a woman going into labor. It was temporary and painful, but it resulted in something glorious. And that is His resurrection. And why did He rise? Peter says at the end of verse 24, since or because it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Why did Jesus rise? Peter says, what did you expect? It was impossible for death to hold Him. Why? Several reasons, right off the cuff. Number one would be His divine power. Death couldn't hold Him because of who He is. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. How does death hold the resurrection and the life. It was impossible for death to hold Him. Divine power. Second reason would be divine promise. Because Jesus said He would rise from the dead. And when Jesus says something, guess what? It happens. In John chapter 2, the Jews came to Jesus and said, give us a sign to show us that you're the one who's doing this. And Jesus said, I'll only give you one sign, and that is destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And they said, wait a minute, it took 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to rebuild it in three days? And then John gives that commentary in verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus said, I'll rise again. Divine power, who he is. Divine promise, he said he'd rise. Let me give you a third reason. Divine purpose. God's purpose was that his people be with him forever. But to get there, we've got to go through death and come out the other side. Which means that Jesus had to go in and make a way through death. And that's exactly what He did. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 20, it says, He was raised as the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, and verse 19, Because I live, what? You shall live also. He made the way through. It was a divine purpose that He make the way through death into life so that we could follow. And so Peter says it was impossible for death to hold him. And then he goes on to give two proofs of the resurrection. The first is Scripture in verses 25 to 31, and for that he quotes Psalm 16. Notice verse 25. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Now he quotes Psalm 16. You say, well, what's the point? Well, he makes his point beginning in verse 29. Notice, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter says in the 16th Psalm, David talks about a man whose body goes into the grave and doesn't rot. Peter says David is not talking about himself. How does he know that? Because he says, David died and rotted. 
In fact, David's tomb, according to 1 Kings 2.10 and Nehemiah 3.16, was in Jerusalem. So Peter says, if you don't believe me, go over there and dig him up. He has rotted. So who is David talking about when he talks about this man who's going to go into the grave and not see decay? Look at verse 30. And so because he was a prophet, able to foretell the future and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter, or David was a prophet, speaking of the future. He knew that God had promised that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne as Messiah, and so when he wrote Psalm 16, he was talking about the Messiah, and he was prophesying his resurrection. And Peter points out two things out of Psalm 16 that he applies to the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 31. He says, He was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh suffer decay. Two things happened. Death didn't get a hold on Jesus in two areas. One was His soul. His soul did not go into Hades. Some people teach that when Jesus went off the cross, He went into hell and suffered for three days didn't happen. When Jesus was on the cross, He said what? It is finished. It was accomplished there. Everything was accomplished. He said to the thief next to Him, this day shalt thou be with Me where? In paradise. He didn't do any suffering after the cross. It, was, it all happened on the cross. And Peter says, death had no hold on his soul. No Hades. And death had no hold on his body. No decay. He went into that tomb. There was no decay on the Lord Jesus. And He came out in resurrection. And so the first evidence He gives is Scripture. The second evidence He gives is the eyewitness count. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up against, again to which we are all witnesses. Not only did David verify it in the Scriptures in Psalm 16, but Peter says we the apostles verify it as well because we are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Which brings us to the fourth point, and that is Jesus' exaltation. Verses 33 to 36. Notice verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Where is Jesus as Peter speaks? He has been exalted to the right hand of God. Now the right hand represented really two things. One was the place of honor. Remember when James and John came to Jesus or sent their mother to Jesus and said, we just like one thing, we just want to sit on your left and right hand in the kingdom. Those were the places of honor. Excuse me. That's why I flunked homiletics. Good preacher would take the flies. Um, where was I? Right and left, thank you. <laughs> the right is the place of honor. It's also the place of power because most people are right-handed. So when it says Jesus was at the right hand of God, He was the place of the most honor in heaven and the place of power in heaven. And so Peter says He's been exalted to that place. 
And then he gives two proofs of his exaltation. They're the same two proofs he gave of the resurrection. The first is eyewitnesses, verse 33. He says to the people, you have become the eyewitnesses because you have heard and seen what? The coming of the Holy Spirit. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is the evidence that Jesus is exalted. Because John chapter 7, verse 39 says, the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now Jesus is glorified. God's given Him the promise of the Holy Spirit and He's poured it forth in the words of Joel 2. And they've seen it. They've heard it. And so Peter says, you're eyewitnesses. This coming of the Holy Spirit is proof that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And then he gives a second proof. And that is Scripture, verses 34 and 35. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. That's Psalm 110. David spoke about my Lord sitting at the right hand of the Lord. Who's that? My Lord is Jesus. The Lord is God the Father. And he says, David didn't ascend into heaven. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. David called Him my Lord. He would sit at the right hand of the Lord. And that's the prophecy about the exaltation of Jesus. And so Peter takes them through these four major events. Jesus' life, where God demonstrated who He was by the miracles. Jesus' death, where God in His eternal plan gave Him over. Jesus' resurrection, where God raised Him from the dead. And Jesus' exaltation, where God placed Him at His right hand. Which brings Him to His conclusion, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. God made Him Lord and Christ. Now be careful. He's not saying that at this moment He became Lord and Christ. He was Lord in Christ when He was on the earth. But He was there in the form of a servant. Now He has been fully displayed through His resurrection and exaltation to be Lord and Christ. And Peter says, there's no doubt. It's a fact. I can say it to you with certainty. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you might expect that to be pretty exciting news that they would celebrate about, except for the last phrase in verse 36. Because there he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a bad combination. God made Him Lord. You crucified Him. How do you think they felt about that? Well, we don't have to guess because verse 37 tells us it was like a dagger to their heart. And we're going to look at that next week as we look at the results and the response to Peter's sermon. But this morning I want us to close by looking at ourselves. Because this message, which was the first sermon in the Christian church, is still applicable to us today. Because Peter can say the very same thing. He can tell us this morning, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is exalted. The proof is in. You can know for certain, Jesus is Lord. But Peter can also say to us, as he did in verse 36, God has made Him Lord in Christ. 
this Jesus whom you crucified. You say, well, I didn't crucify Him. Well, yes, you did. Because why did Jesus die? He died for your sin and my sin. Your sin nailed Him there. And Peter might be able to go on in verse 36 and say something even worse to you. He might be able to say to you, God made Him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you have rejected. God made Him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you have ignored. You see, Jesus is Lord, whether you believe it or not. God has made Him Lord. And He is sitting this morning at the right hand of God in heaven, exalted in glory, whether you accept Him or not. But you know what's amazing to me? As we go on and read in this passage, we're going to find that God forgave these people that crucified Jesus. That's amazing. And just as amazing is the fact that God forgives those of us whose sin nailed Him there. That's the amazing thing about the cross. It was a cross of mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's the amazing thing about God's plan. Before He ever created the world, He knew it was going to cost Him His Son. Why? Because He loved you and me. He knew we were going to rebel. He knew we'd be sinners. He was willing to pay that price for our forgiveness. That's an amazing thing. That is something that you and I will marvel about for eternity because it doesn't make any logical sense. It's based in the love and forgiveness and mercy of a God that we can only begin to grasp. The same Jesus who hung in shame, bleeding and dying on the cross, is now exalted in heaven. Why not come to the foot of the cross this morning and acknowledge Jesus, the Lord, as your Lord? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. And we thank You for this message from the mouth of Peter, filled with Your Spirit, proclaiming Your truth, And Father, we thank You that that message, which is nearly 2,000 years old, is just as cutting this morning as it was then. And Father, we thank You that though we deserve the flames of hell, because our sin nailed Jesus to the cross, we rejoice this morning that You have offered us forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. In fact, You have promised us that we can sit with Jesus on His throne because we're identified with Him. What mercy. What grace. Father, help us to begin to grasp it this morning. To begin to appreciate it. And Father, I pray if there are those here this morning who have never come by faith, childlike faith to the Lord Jesus, that this might be their day. I pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.